This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Leaders from many countries across the globe, as well as business leaders, are in Paris to discuss the future of the Earth and what they must do to try and turn the course on what could be a terminal problem for the planet. Joining us to take a look at the climate talks, Wharton Professor Howard Kunruther joins us in studio. He's co-director of the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center here at Wharton. Also joining us on the phone is University of Michigan business professor Andrew Hoffman, who is the education director of the Sustainability Institute at that school as well. Howard, great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Always good to be here, Dan. Thank you. Andrew, great to have you on the phone. Uh, it's a pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started into this, uh, I wanted to play a little bit of a comment uh, from President Obama earlier today, just exactly what he is hoping for to happen in Paris. 14 of the 15 warmest years on record have occurred since the year 2000. And 2015 is on pace to be the warmest year of all. No nation, large or small, wealthy or poor, is immune to what this means. Uh, Howard, this is obviously, uh, this is a very important stretch of time, and we've been leading up to this, we've been talking about this for several months now, it is here. Just your general thoughts on what we're going to see over over this period of time when all of these people are in Paris trying to figure out a plan. Well, for one thing, I think, Dan, it is extremely important that President Obama is in Paris for these first two days to highlight the importance of bringing everyone together. And I think that's a first step in the process. As a part of that, I think the idea of bringing key nations as a starting point, Uh China and India being two of them, to really band together and highlight how they are committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions as a way of trying to encourage all the nations who are in Paris to do the same. So I think that's a first step. I think Uh the second step on all of this is to highlight the importance of the dealing with this problem now today. Uh It's a long-term problem. People have a challenge in terms of recognizing that in the short term. And somehow this conference in Paris is going to highlight everyone's commitment to the long term so that hopefully people will take steps now to go forward in in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and also to adapt to the climate change problem. Andrew, what are you you hopeful for in these uh, these conversations? Well, hopeful for... uh there will be some kind of an agreement. I, I have little doubt of that after the failure in Copenhagen to walk away empty-handed here would just be a tremendous stall in the process globally to deal with this issue. Will we have an agreement that will get us to a level that scientists are calling for, keeping us at two degrees? I doubt it. But hopefully we'll set a framework that can be built upon, tightened, and strengthened as we go. That, that two degrees is an interesting piece which is kind of played and explain a little bit what exactly the scientists are talking about uh, with that. And is it even a, a feasible number to really shoot for right now? It's not really a feasible number to shoot for right now because we've overshot it by such a great deal. It, right. The two degrees is based on a certain uh, percentage or concentration of CO2 or greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. 
And, and we've already exceeded that number. And to get us back down to that number and actually below the number in order to level out back at around two degrees, that would be extremely challenging at this point in time. We are joined uh, on the phone by Andrew Hoffman at the University of Michigan, Howard Kunruther of uh, the Wharton School. Howard, you, as we were talking before we went on the air, you've actually done quite a bit of work in terms of thinking on the short term uh, for the types of changes that need to be made. You mentioned uh, to me before we went on about what Bill Gates would like to see long term, but it is something that has to be really thought of a lot in the short term as well. Uh, that's absolutely right, Dan. First of all, let me just say I agree with Andrew that it is extremely difficult to get to the two degrees uh, and maybe impossible given what we've already uh, committed in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. However, uh, the steps that can be taken are critically important today. And what Bill Gates did uh, this morning by announcing that he will be uh, actually investing $1 billion into innovation on climate change, uh, on energy efficiency measures to reduce climate change is critical. He has 28 investors who he's had joined with him, plus the governments of countries. And I think that's a very, very important next step to saying we have to do things not only for the developed, but the developing countries, and innovation yeah. is critical. But having said that, one of the really great challenges in this whole area is to get short-term uh, measures that will somehow address this issue. And just turning to the energy efficiency, uh, there's a real reluctance on the part of individuals to incur very, very high upfront costs for in, uh, investing in solar and wind because they say they can't afford it. Right. And one of the things that we have struggled with is how do you get short-term incentives? I'll give you one example with respect to that. If you somehow have what is done in California, which is California companies will pay the upfront cost of yeah. these energy-efficient measures and then have a long-term loan that somehow couples with that to, to pay that back. But the energy reduction with respect to the, uh, uh, the cost of energy will be greater than the cost of the loan. So this becomes an efficient way to deal with it. What Bill Gates is doing is uh, complementing that by suggesting that if we can really have new developments, we will reduce the price of, of energy efficiency to a point where it'll be competitive with coal and fossil fuels. And that's a major, major yeah. step forward. Well, and, and, you know, the cost of solar has obviously been coming down in the last couple of years. It's still, as you said, maybe not where it, it obviously needs to be. But it, just the, the, the philosophy of people thinking along that lines, and not even just thinking about it, but actually doing something about it is kind of a hurdle that still has to be cleared in a lot of cases. Right, Howard? That's exactly right. And I think when you're talking about other, other challenges with respect to climate change, such as sea level rise on flooding, yeah. you have a major problem there on adaptation because you may not be able to prevent that at all, and you're going to have to have homes that are going to have to be built to deal with it. So I think yeah. there's a real, real... Uh, opportunity here with Paris setting a tone for that, for everyone to say they will be willing to do their part, countries having to say that, but then individuals and businesses. And I think that is really the opportunity here. And the hope is that we will get an agreement. Uh, as uh, Andrew has indicated, there's a hope for that. And I think there's a very, very good chance the public is supporting that. Yeah. The American public is supporting the notion of having an agreement. I, I, I don't think, Andrew, there's much doubt that not only is the American public supporting it for the most part, 
part, but I, w- I would venture a guess that if you talk to the communities uh, of countries around the world, that most countries support it. It's just the process of, of putting a plan in place that is a workable plan, not only for the larger countries uh, across the globe, United States, China, India, you know, you name it, but also the, the developing countries as well. Well, I don't know if that's a, we can say that quite so clearly. Okay. Um, public opinion polls in the United States are up around 67% of Americans think that climate change is real. That clip you played of President Obama to open this segment, he's still making the case that climate change is real. There are conservative Republican politicians that are still saying that climate change is not real and yeah. will stand to try and block something that's done here. So there, we're still trying to have that battle over whether climate change is real. And we don't need, necessarily need to put that to bed before we start to talk about solutions. Uh, we de- do need to address that, in particular in this country, the sharp partisan divide over that, where the majority of Republicans don't think it's real, the majority of Democrats do. The only point I would add, though, Andrew, uh, the recent survey came out that 71 percent of the Americans feel it's important to reach an agreement in Paris. This is the, uh, the short run in the context of what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think that is something that is critical. And uh, a large majority of Democrats feel that way. Eighty five percent came out of the survey and nearly two out of three Republicans feel that way. So we have at least from the point of view of survey information that uh, Tony Lysowitz and others have, have just uh, completed uh, that suggests that this is something that at least will happen here in Paris from the vantage point of at least the American public's feeling that it's important. Howard, you mentioned about Bill Gates earlier today. Here's a little clip from Bill Gates earlier today. Key to getting increased commitments uh, to avoid the, <clears throat> the temperature rise that we want to avoid is going to be innovation. We need to bring the cost premium for being clean down. And the partnership that's key to that is governments funding basic research and private investors like the group of 28 people I brought together uh, to take the high-risk venture investments and turn those into products so that we can have clean energy that's not more expensive than today's hydrocarbon energy. That's an interview that Bill Gates did with CNN uh, earlier this morning. And Andrew, you do bring up the, uh, a vital point in this, is, and is the fact that there is such a divide in Washington, D.C. with our, our government right now that trying to push forward, I mean, even this issue is, is still a divisive issue on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. today when a lot of the data out there says, look, it's pretty obvious what we're headed for. Right. And I would build, but I would build upon what Howard just added, um, which I think is important, that while uh, at the level of the government, uh, the divide is pretty sharp. Look at the Republican candidates for president saying that climate change is not real, with the exception of uh, George Pataki and uh, Lindsey Graham, who are on that second tier, and the the Democratic candidates saying it is real. But the the tide is shifting, and and Howard cites a very important survey that just came out from Yale that uh, uh, Republicans are starting to move on this issue in terms of the rank and file. So there is a great question to be asked here of what is the political calculus right now for conservative Republicans on climate change? And many of them are afraid to step out for fear that the the voting base will hammer them, uh, as they did Bob Inglis. But I think there's a fair question to be asked of whether they're misreading 
a moving landscape and whether conservative Republicans are moving towards accepting the science and and we can get beyond the question of if it's happening and get more towards the question of what to do about it. And I personally think that within the Republican Party, I see a lot of conservative blogs saying that this position is untenable for the Republican Party to say this is not happening while policy solutions are starting to be derived. I mean, James Inhofe is going or was at least recently talking about going to Paris to try and throw a wrench into the the conversation. That is not a, a, a reasonable place for the Republican Party to be. I also wanted to bring up, uh, Andrew, the role as we kind of played the piece from Bill Gates uh, in terms of of the private sector really pushing this move forward and whether or not it is actually the private sector that may have the greatest opportunity for advancement right now in the short term compared to what we would see potentially from the government. I agree. But it has to be both. You know, I uh, think no question. Important. No you know, question. The, the, the corporate sector is necessary if we're going to find any solutions. They have to come from the corporate sector. It's just impossible without them. I think they're also important politically um, for them to step forward and say this is real. We need to do something about it. Uh, puts a lot of people at ease that uh, that uh, we're not going to destroy the economy mm-hmm. by addressing this issue. I think corporations have many different interests for stepping forward. At the same time, governments need to stay play a strong hand. If we're going to have a, a, a an agreement with some teeth, and this can't be watered down by uh, a more conservative approach from the business community. So there's a there's a difficult balancing act. They need to be at the table, but government needs to be be a strong player in that conversation. Howard. Well, I absolutely agree with what Andrew just said. You've got to have a combination of the public and private sector involved. And I think what Bill Gates is really suggesting is that there's a real opportunity from an entrepreneurial side to really have investment in these new technologies, and the R&D will be a very important part. But I think the other element here that has to be addressed and will be addressed in Paris is the developing countries, because they have a real challenge here in terms of their own investments in energy efficiency. They don't have the um, the funds for doing that, and they also are committed to fossil fuels in a way that uh, the developed countries are trying to move away. Just one little note on that. The two big countries, China and India, have major pollution problems yeah. as we speak. Yeah. Uh, China has told all of its citizens to be indoors today simply because of the <laughs> fact that the, the pollution is higher than it has ever been, and India has a similar kind of a problem. So we see that as a part of it, but that doesn't solve the problem. And I think that there really needs to be a commitment by the developed countries to fund and help, essentially, the developing countries from actually providing, essentially, uh, the the same kinds of resources that will be needed with respect to changing this problem. So then, is the relationship with people like Bill Gates with Prime Minister Modi uh, of India and President Xi Jinping in in China is those are those the relationships that are extremely important right now, or is it the relationship that those two gentlemen have with President Obama and and, and other leaders in the European Union right now? I would say both. I think okay. you need Bill Gates to be a part of that, obviously, and to try to make the case that he's making publicly now in terms yeah. of his commitment and the commitment of other investors. But you need President Obama uh, to deal with these two countries and that could help chip others to go forward. But you also need a commitment in the part of of the developed countries to provide funds to the developing countries.
countries. Hillary yeah. Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, had committed uh, $100 billion over, uh, annually or a fair amount of money to say that we would be helping with respect to trying to provide money for the developed countries, the developing countries. That necessarily hasn't materialized now, sure. but at least it was a statement to have to move in that direction. Andrew? I would add that, you know, Bill Gates is putting his money forward, but he also came out and said there's no way that the, the, the business community is going to do this on their own. There needs to be policies set to guide the market in the right direction. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Let's assume that that everything goes as relatively smoothly as we can expect uh, in, in Paris, and some sort of agreement is hammered out. Then, Howard, what are the next steps? What 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 is A1, A2, and A3 that needs to happen after the Paris conference? Well, I think the most important part is if there is an agreement, there will be commitments on the part of various countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. That is what is hopefully coming forward. The enforcement of those agreements is going to be very critical. And one next step is to make sure that there are incentives for these countries to enforce. That's why the notion of providing some aid will be important. Yeah. And also to have regular meetings. Uh, they talk about every five years, and you may want to do it even more frequently than five years right. to make sure that what the countries are saying they're going to do will actually be achieved. Yeah, Andrew, that, that five-year window, even to me, sounds like it's a little bit long that, that we should be having these types of discussions on a more frequent basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, we can talk about what kind of conversations we have at the global level, and that's uh, what the COP provides, but I'm also very very interested in what happens at the national level. And we don't want to repeat what happened with the Kyoto Treaty, where Bill Clinton, President Clinton, was 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 too afraid to even bring it up to Congress for ratification. And uh, Congress did its own ratification process on its own and roundly shot it down. So yeah. the political groundwork has to be built here and in other countries to accept and act upon what comes out of Paris. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. What are the strategies then long-term that, that Bill Gates would like to see put in place that are probably the best, the best for trying to change climate change right now? Well, I think the, uh, the main strategy that Bill Gates has, in, uh, has put forward is research and development, innovation, mm-hmm having investment in that as a way of trying to make this a profitable venture yeah. on the part of investors, and at the same time, trying to have ways that these energy-efficient technologies will bring the price down because of these R&D investments yeah. so that it will be competitive with fossil fuel. And the other point that, as I mentioned earlier, is the uh, adoption of these measures. The more uh, people and more businesses that adopt energy efficiency, the easier it's going to be to reduce the price because you have these positive externalities that come about by everyone sort of saying that this is a way that we have to go. And it is an industry, uh, Andrew, that we have seen on smaller levels that can be profitable. So this concept that it's going to be a drag on an economy rather than something to build an economy up over the next 50 years is just not valid. 
Well, you know, the, the, the question, does it pay to be green, is a complicated one. And it's the same as asking, does it pay to innovate? Think about climate change as a market shift. And policies that are set will drive that market shift. So will shifting consumer demand. I would put the insurance sector into this conversation as a major driver on adaptation. Yeah. And so, you know, the it, it's complicated and hard stuff to try and capitalize on the market shift and see it coming. But I would I would like to add one more piece to this conversation. You know, Bill Gates is 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 a technology guy. He comes from a technology company. Technology is going to save the day, and that is the avenue for business coming up with new energy sources, new forms of mobility, and so forth. But there is still a question of whether technology is going to be able to get us out of this situation as a global community. Mm-hmm. As population grows, as people in the developing world want to have living standards equivalent to the developed world, uh, is a new form of energy really going to solve the problem for us, or do we have to think different or, or more deeply about uh, the extent to which we consume, uh, what we consume, and uh, let's face it, the income inequalities and the north-south divide on this issue. This is a very, very hard issue, and I think that the Pope's encyclical yeah. really captured it nicely because a lot of people talking about it as a climate change encyclical, and it's, it's really not. It is far more than that about really just sort of thinking about who we are and how we live in the world we have now, which is becoming extremely complex. Climate change is just one marker of a, a broader shift in, in the extent to which we are having a demonstrable impact on the global environment. Well, I think in some respects, you have to give the Pope a lot of credit for basically stepping outside of the Catholic Church to really try and tackle an issue that obviously does affect the millions and millions of, uh, of Catholics that are around the around the globe, but it also affects the, the globe in general. He's thinking, he is truly thinking lar- long term in this and larger than just beyond the Catholic Church. And, you know, I, I, if you think about this in terms of social movements and shifting beliefs and ideas, which it really is, then I think about the different players that are coming to the fore. And the corporate sector is really stepping up. That will start to shift the debate. I also think that the religious community has to be a part of this conversation. If people hear about climate change from the church, the mosque, the synagogue, the temple, that will have a power to convince and compel yeah. that will match or perhaps even exceed a monetary incentive. And and we have to think about, you know, the, the costs and benefits of doing nothing, of doing something. And, you know, Nicholas Stern, when he wrote the Stern Report, pointed out that if we do nothing, there will be costs. If we do something, there will be costs, which will be greater. It's not just a baseline of yep. zero. It's, it's what kind of a world are we going to live in in 5, 10, 100 years? And what are we going to spend now to avoid that kind of world? But there's a much different level of uh, of... Uh, of understanding when you're talking about the cost being one that obviously have a, a, a wide range of of issues and problems that, that could affect this planet. And it's another in where that the costs are investments as well. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a big rub here. You're asking present generations to spend the money for a uncertain outcome for future generations and that that's a hard sell i think we can i think we're coming to a realization i think that you know that 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 the different constituencies religion business a lot of conservatives are starting to come out now and say enough's enough that the science is is just overwhelming we have to we have to shift our position on this issue um and so it, it, it if we can compel people to recognize that this is a real issue 
uh, then we can compel them to do something about it. So let me add to what Andrew said, and I agree uh, completely with the, the general tone that uh, both you're raising, Dan, and Andrew is responding to, and that is we have to have a long-term view of this problem. The Pope has certainly provided that from the point of view of, of the comments that he made. But I think at the same time, we have to do, we have to recognize that the long-term is certainly admirable, but if people are going to feel that they're impinged in the short term, it's uh-huh. going to be extremely difficult. And I think the area that we need to think about first is that greenhouse gas emissions is only a part of the problem. We do have to adapt, and adapting is going to be critical, and that's one of the reasons why I brought up the issue and that we brought up the issue of sea level rise as one element that we haven't and won't be discussed necessarily in in Paris, but is is facing people around the world with respect to the flooding problems, et cetera. And we've got to take steps now to do that. And the only way that people are going to do that, uh, the reality is, is if they can afford to do it and if there are steps that are taken in the short term. So we can have all of these goals in the long term that Andrew has referred to and that I, all we all strongly support. But at the end of the day, there's, it, when push comes to shove, people are going to say, what are we going to do right, right. now in order to be able to address this? How issue? hard is, is getting the, the thought process to that we instead of just the me? Extremely yeah. difficult un, uh, to do that unless one can address some of the short term. Once one feels that there are some benefits that one will have in the short term, yeah. it's a lot easier to think long term. Otherwise, there can be an attitude. Yes, this is very, very important to do, but we're not really in a position where we as individuals or businesses will take those steps because we've got to survive yeah. and deal with the short term. The one point that I think is important to highlight, and Andrew mentioned that with respect to the Nixon Stern report is that if we maintain the status quo, we are going to have very, very serious problems and we need to compare what will happen to changes in the status quo relative to continuing with the current course. Final point, Andrew, uh, part of this is also really the philosophy that, as we alluded to, companies will take going forward. And if companies make this part of their day-to-day operations and they make it a line item in their, you know, in their fiscal statements, then that is that's showing the commitment that needs to happen for companies across the United States and obviously around the globe. Sure. And, and to build on what Howard said, I mean, the, 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 the response, the, the, the impact of climate change is happening now. And that's what's bringing yeah. business to the table. Um, General Mills came out with a press release uh, about a month ago saying that we're seeing changes in our growing patterns. If governments don't do something, we will see food shortages in the short to medium term. There is uh, a real wake-up call to make the salient and personal move beyond the me to the we, that we've got a problem. And so uh, many companies are seeing adaptation issues already. Water shortages is sort of the physical manifestation of climate change. But they're also looking, most business people are looking at this issue and saying it's not a question of if we're going to have any climate policies. It's going to be a issue of when. And if I'm going to make asset decisions that I'm going to live with for the next 60, 80, 100 years, uh, I want to know whether I'm going to have to deal with uh, a climate regime and what kind of regime that's going to be. Just reduce the uncertainty so I know how to work it into my cost decisions, my investment decisions, and we can be done with this. Go ahead, Howard. Just one little point related to that, and on a very positive note, the state of Louisiana is extremely concerned with the challenges of climate change, and they have a plan to think about 2080 rather than 2020 in Mm. terms of how they're going to proceed with respect to doing adapting to this. So I think when you begin to get people, states, governments at the local level 
providing that kind of concern, we yeah. have an opportunity to deal with this a- problem. As you mentioned to me before we went on the air, uh, and, and just to kind of repeat it, it seemingly, though, in the United States, California is probably one of the greatest focuses where this topic is concerned, correct? No, there's no question that from the vantage point of energy efficiency, which yeah. is, of course, a theme of this meeting now, or certainly with Bill Gates uh, making his comment, California does the be- has the best opportunity. They get a lot of sun, and they're able yeah. to somehow make this uh, economically feasible. Other states and other countries will have a harder time dealing with this, and that's one of the reasons why we need these new technologies to help us out on that. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.